Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Eric Brotman. He is a financial planner and expert on investing and retirement. Uh, His company is called Brotman Financial Group, and he's also done a book called Retire Wealthy, The Tools You Need to Build Lasting Wealth on your own or with a financial advisor. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Eric. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So just do a little bit of background on you uh, and how you created your own firm, but just give us a brief history of of your experience. Uh, Sure. I I started in the financial uh, arena in 1994, uh, earned my CFP, the Certified Financial Planner designation in 98, uh, and in 2003 launched uh, my own consultancy. Um, that has now grown from myself and, and one full and one part-time person to 16 folks, uh, eight advisors. We're managing uh, about $350 million for over 300 families in 25 states. So we've, we've got a nice footprint here, and we're based outside of the Baltimore area. So uh, you deal with a lot of pre-retirees and retirees. Is that the majority of the people you're dealing with? Is that right? Yeah. I, I, the, the typical client who shows up on our doorstep is what I'd refer to as sandwich generation. They're 45 to 60. They've got parents getting older they're worried about. They've got kids to educate. They're working 60 hours a week, uh, and they'd like to retire at some point and need to figure out how to, how to flip from a, an accumulation model to an income distribution model. So what is the most common concern they have? I mean, I guess being said with generation, but is it earning a decent return on their money or how much they need to be saving? What, what are the, the most common questions you get from them? I think the most common one is, can I retire and what's that going to look like? Um, I don't think it's about returns. In fact, I would say that's almost the least important determinant. Most of it's about behavior, habits, spending, and things that we can control. The things that we can't control are far less important most of the time. And uh, so what I'd say is, for most folks, particularly pre-retirees, there's the the moment that you say, well, wait a minute, once I pull the, the switch here and I stop getting a paycheck, how am I going to live? What's my lifestyle going to be? Am I going to outlive my money? And those are the big, scary fears. And what is the biggest mistake you think people are making in preparing for retirement? Um, the, well, the big one is underestimating what it's going to cost. I mean, there's the, not only is inflation a big specter, and it's been a while since we've had significant inflation in the U.S., but it, it will be back at some point. Um, I would say people underestimate how much money it's going to take to retire uh, and how much they're going to need to live on uh, and also potentially how long they're going to live. So outliving their money is something they're not thinking about very much. Uh, well, I'd say they're thinking about it a lot, but I have no idea what to do about it. I mean, there's, <laughs> yes, there's yes. this idea of being young and, and broke is, a, is an inconvenience and being old and broke is a tragedy, I, I think resonates with folks. The, the idea that boy, if I run out of money at 23, I have time to recover, or even 33. But if I run out of money at 83, I got a serious problem. Indeed. Okay, so you, there's several things we want to talk about. One is taxes. You have various strategies to help reduce income taxes legally. Before we get into those in detail, what has been the impact of the new tax law on your planning for clients? The new tax law, it, it, it kind of is a hot potato because there's so many different uh, elements to it. There have been very few things that I see as positives regarding the tax law, uh, one of them being use of 529s toward uh, primary and secondary school. Uh, however, for most of, most of our clients are somewhere between 200000 and a $1 million in income. 
And those are the folks, I think, being hurt the most by the tax bill. Folks making over a million dollars got a significant tax decrease because of the rate change. And folks under 200000 are, for the most part, either broke even or got a small, uh, a small bump in their, in their tax reduction. But for the people in the middle, especially those folks who live in states with high state income tax, that's, that's really, to me, the biggest determinant. So states like uh, Maryland, of course, our home state, but also California, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, some of the high-income tax states, the, the impact of not being able to deduct your state income tax against federal taxes is a big deal. And the other are folks who own multiple homes because real estate taxes are now capped. So while there's AMT has functionally gone away for almost everyone, um, and the idea is that this is going to be some kind of break-even or some kind of tax cut. Uh, we're seeing that not necessarily be true, particularly in, in the high-income tax states. So what do you tell people who are in those high-income tax states who are going to have a bigger tax bill because they can't deduct all their state and local taxes or their property taxes? Do you tell them to move to Florida? I mean, what do you tell them to do? Uh, if they have the wherewithal to do it, if they're retirees or pre-retirees, the short answer is yes, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, for folks who have young families and aren't in that position, what I tell folks to do is make sure that they work with their CPA in advance, that they start increasing their uh, quarterly estimates if they pay those, or that they reduce the number of exemptions on their paycheck if they're having taxes withheld, just to be prepared for what could be a larger bite of that apple next year. Um, for people who are in their 60s uh, and contemplating retirement or a second home, being in Florida or in our area, Delaware, makes a ton of sense. Real estate taxes are lower. State income taxes are either very low or zero. And you're keeping more of your own money. Do you think this tax law is going to affect uh, real estate values in the, some of those high-tax states? You know, it's, it's hard to say. I, it, my, my instinct is, yes, of course it will. However, I think folks who are at a certain income level might, um, might be insulated a little bit from worried, worrying about those tax items. I mean, if you make enough money that this is a, a haircut of ten or twenty or $30,000 in a year, believe it or not, some people would say, ah, that's rounding error. Um, for most people, I would say that the only homes that are going to be impacted are sort of the McMansions. The six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar homes in um, in areas with high real estate and/or high income taxes will be hurt. The real high end real estate will be immune to this, and the lower end real estate will be largely immune to it because the taxes are modest. But I think there is again that middle sweet spot. I think the upper middle class is going to make out the worst on this whole deal, from real estate to taxes to savings to everything. I mean, one area that they should be helped by is the pass through entity if they have a small business. If they're not already organized as a subchapter S or an LLC, if they organize that way, that could save them a lot of taxes. Is that right? Well, it will, but only if you're a very small business um, because you, you phase out of that. And I, I don't remember the exact number, but I do know that there's a phase out there and that once your S corporation gets over a certain amount of, of gross receipts, you no longer qualify for the 20% reduction. I see. I think it's about 330000 is the phase out, something like that. Yeah. So, so okay. you know, if you're a startup business, yes, it's a, it, it definitely will create some entrepreneurship, and that's a very good thing. Um, but in terms of creating business growth and additional profits and expansions, I think that's less likely. That's less likely to matter. So let's go through some of the strategies about how to reduce your income tax legally, which still hold up even under the new tax law. Uh, the first one is Roth IRAs. So what is the advantage of doing a Roth IRA? The thing I like about the Roth IRA, and in fact, all of the strategies that we're going to talk about, are that used properly, money can be put places where it will never be taxed again. 
So where you're not looking at either capital gains or ordinary income taxes or surcharges or any kind of, of tax bill. On the Roth IRA, the Roth IRA allows you to use after-tax dollars to fund some retirement, but then to have tax deferral along the way where you don't get a 1099 every year, it, it grows for as long as you hold the account, and then all of your withdrawals are tax-free. And the impact of that is that you're foregoing a tax deduction on a small number and allowing yourself a tax-free withdrawal on what could be a much larger number. And so while a Roth isn't for everybody, it is certainly a strategy worth considering. If you're retired already, you're not working anymore, can you open a Roth uh, to roll, do a conversion into a Roth if you don't have yes. earned income? Yes, you can convert. You can't fund a new Roth IRA because you need earned income to fund it. However, you can do a conversion at any age and at any income level. So um, there are no restrictions. There are restrictions on when you can contribute. There are no restrictions on when you can convert. Uh -huh. So if, you, if you're in your 60s, for example, and you're at a point where you're thinking of retiring 66, 67, 68, and you have some IRAs or 401ks or what have you that are qualified, you might benefit from doing some conversions to Roths before you start taking your Social Security and you start taking your required distributions from IRAs. You might have a couple of years with abnormally low adjusted gross income when you could benefit from those conversions and you could move the money, pay, pay the paper a little bit, but then allow it to grow indefinitely. Some would say now is a particularly good time to do a Roth conversion because tax rates are down at the lowest level they'll probably ever be. Does that make sense to you? Uh, it does make sense to me, um, though, again, I, I, I worry about a one-size-fits-all situation. It certainly isn't right for everyone. But unless you are predictably going to have significantly lower income in retirement than you are today, doing some form of Roth conversion, whether it be partial or otherwise, makes a good amount of sense right now. And then inside the Roth IRA, since it's growing tax-free, do you recommend people be aggressive with their investments or conservative and have income-oriented investments that are reinvesting? That, that is very specific to a, a client's needs and age and, and whether you need income, whether you're drawing and so forth. But in general, the Roth IRA, because it's tax-free nature, is going to be one of the last accounts that you start using in retirement. So it can be a slightly more aggressive piece of your portfolio. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to become you know, all, you know, a rock star all of a sudden and, uh, and get speculative. But it does mean it's likely to be the longest time horizon money that you have because the, the taxes are already prepaid. So you think there's a lot of people that could use the Roth IRA that are not. When you have clients coming into you, in many cases, they have not done a Roth and you help them set one up. Is that right? Sometimes we help them set up Roth IRAs for conversion. Sometimes we help them set Roth IRAs for their children or other family members who have W-2 income and are in our lower income tax uh, situations. Sometimes we do non-deductible IRA contributions which is a mouthful, but you're limited to whether you can deduct a traditional IRA and you're limited as whether you can contribute to a Roth. But you are not limited to waiving a deduction on a traditional IRA contribution and you're not limited on a conversion. So there are ways to get money over to a Roth and to establish basis in your IRA. And I know I'm starting to sound like an accountant and I don't mean to do that, but at the end of the day, there are ways to get money into a Roth even if you have too much income to qualify. Do you think that Congress might see this as a target and at some point would make Roth contributions and earnings taxable? I certainly hope not, because that would be um, that would be one of those situations where it's a bait and switch by the government. And while I put nothing past Congress, I would say this is one that would be politically extremely unpopular 
because so many folks at all income levels are participating. In fact, if anything, traditionally the idea of a Roth IRA was for modest income earners who are the least likely to be penalized by future tax policy. Could you see some kind of surcharge on accounts over a certain size or I guess you could. Um, whether it's constitutional or not, I, I would say should matter. Whether it does or not, Jordan, I don't know. But but I would say it's unlikely that the that the Roth IRA will be taxed down the road. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Eric Brotman. He's a financial planner at BrotmanFinancial.com uh, Financial, is his website. He has a book out called Retire Wealthy, The Tools You Need to Build Lasting Wealth on your own or with your own financial advisor. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We've all been there. Struggling to keep up with credit card payments? Searching for a simpler, safer way out of debt? Well, here it is. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a nonprofit service that has been helping people reduce or eliminate their credit card debt for over 20 years. Most of us have made late payments and even gone over our credit limits. Before we know it, our balances are out of control and we can barely afford to make the minimum payments. If this sounds familiar and you're ready to take control of your debts, call Cambridge right away at 1-800-897-2200 for a debt-free analysis. Cambridge will work with your creditors and may be able to reduce your interest rates and get you out of debt fast. In fact, Cambridge's typical debt management clients save almost $150 every month on their credit card payments, and they're debt-free in just 50 months. So there is a simpler, safer way out of debt, and it all starts with Cambridge Credit Counseling. Call 1-800-897-2200 for your free debt analysis. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a Massachusetts-based nonprofit agency providing services nationwide. For complete licensing information, Visit them online at cambridge-credit.org. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Has your small business been turned down for a loan by the bank? Is lack of capital hindering your business growth? Small businesses unable to obtain bank financing or tired of merchant cash advances can now get the financing they need. Corporate Lending Solutions provides short and long-term capital, revolving lines of credit, and unsecured business loans. Does your business need help with payables, supplies, or payroll? Corporate Lending Solutions has powerful programs to help. While getting a small business loan can be a long, daunting process, with Corporate Lending Solutions, it's simple and takes only one to three days. Call 800-261-6478 or visit CorporateLendingSolutions.com to learn more. 800-261-6478. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. 
Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Eric Bratman. He is a financial planner in Maryland. Uh, his book is called Retire Wealthy, and his website is bratmanfinancial.com. Welcome back to the show, Eric. Welcome. Thank you. So we were talking about ways to save taxes. We talked about Roth IRAs. The next one is 529 college savings plans. So what's so good about those, and how has the tax law enhanced them? Well, 529 plans are terrific in so many different ways for so many different donors because any gift made to a 529 is not what's called a completed gift to a beneficiary, and it does allow to, to remove those dollars from an estate. So what I mean by that is if, if grandparents want to put money into a plan for their grandchildren or parents for their kids, the kids are never the owners of the plan. So. One of the hesitations we've always had with folks putting money in their kid's name is saying, well, you know, Junior is three years old. We don't know what he or she is going to grow up to be like, and we don't want to put a ton of money away. What if they don't go to school, or what if they're, you know, what if they're not a good egg or what have you? So um, this allows you to put money away in some cases to get a deduction at the state level, though there's never a deduction at the federal level, but it grows completely tax-free. And if it's used properly, and there are rules and regs in terms of how you use it, but if it's used for education under specific conditions, you never pay capital gains or any kind of income tax on a withdrawal. And then uh, how is have, it enhanced by the new tax bill? Uh, it's enhanced because now instead of only working for uh, undergraduate and graduate college educations, it can now be used up to $10,000 per beneficiary per year for private school. So for those parents who choose not to use the public school system and they have kids in private school, you can now offset your tuition by up to $10,000 by using this plan and not paying taxes on, on uh, contributions that you made. And then once you have the money in the 529 plan, how should you typically invest it? Aggressive when the kid is younger and more conservative as you get nearer to the tuition date? Typically, yes. And some of the plans actually have uh, built-in funds that, like a target retirement fund, have a target education fund so that they get gradually less aggressive as, as your uh, son or daughter gets closer to matriculation. Um, and, and again, it depends how you plan to use it. If you plan to use it for undergraduate school, you treat it one way. If you plan to use it for seventh grade, you're going to naturally invest a different way. It depends on your time horizon and the age of your child. Do you normally think it's best to put money into your own state's 529 plan, or you don't have to? You can do it for uh, 529 plans around the country. If so, what would be one of your favorite state plans? It Well, it depends on your home state. If you're a resident, for example, of Pennsylvania, you have what's called tax parity, which means that you can get a state-level tax deduction no matter which plan you're in. In a state like Maryland, you can only get a state-level tax deduction if you're in a specific plan that is a Maryland plan. Now, these plans don't tell you where you must go to school, so they're not, they don't restrict the college choice that your son or daughter may have, but there are incentives, certainly, in some states to use your own plan. Most of them are capped. So again, I use Pennsylvania and Maryland as, as an example because they're so different. Pennsylvania allows you to deduct uh, up to uh, $11,000 or $12,000 per child per year from any plan you want. And in Maryland, it's limited to $2,500 per year, and it has to be the Maryland plan. So every state is different. There's a website, savingsforcollege.com. Savingsforcollege.com has all this information. There's about 80 different 529 plans. Um, the plan we use the most, in fact, the plan my daughter's money is in is the Virginia plan. I actually uh, I have two Maryland plans for her where we take advantage of the 2500 and the max we can deduct, and then the rest of it's with Virginia because I prefer their funds. So why would one do a 529 plan over a Uniform Gifts to Minors Act? 
as a way of saving for kids, which is not limited as to how much you can put into it. No, it's not, but the uniform transfers, whether it's a uniform uh, transfer to Miners Act or uniform gift to Miners Act, there's a lot of real big drawbacks to having those accounts. Um, first of all, the gifts are irrevocable. So if you make a gift to that child, it is the child's money to do anything he or she, she chooses at the age of majority. So there's nothing to prevent that child at 18 in most states from saying, you know, to heck with school, I'm going to buy a Porsche. Um, and so that's an issue. Number two, you have 1099 income along the way. There are actually capital gains being paid on these accounts every year, and you have capital gains on something when you sell it. So you lose any kind of tax benefit. There's no deduction for a contribution. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no deferral on uh, existing assets. And I think the biggest of all, after even talking about the control, the biggest problem with custodial accounts and the irrevocable nature of the gift is that in every single case, these will hurt your family's ability to get financial aid for school. Um, because the FAFSA form looks at every single dollar in a custodial plan as being available for school. So if you're applying to a university and it's $50,000 a year, and they're looking at your family's ability to pay, Every dollar you have in a custodial plan is a dollar less of aid that you'll receive. It essentially makes no sense. You're putting money into an account, you're paying taxes on it as it grows, and it's essentially going directly to the school by limiting what they have to give you in aid. Makes and no how sense. is that different from a 529? How is a FAFSA form a look at 529 assets? 529s are not treated the same way as custodial assets because the gifts are not irrevocable, so it's not the child's money. If I have a, a plan for my daughter and decide I want to change the beneficiary and name your daughter, I could do that tomorrow and the money goes away. So what the FAFSA does is if you have 529s, they essentially discount it to about 25% of the impact of it. So the idea is, yes, they know you have some money put away, but it's not dollar for dollar. It won't reduce your financial aid in as meaningful a way. It's not even close. Very good. Another way to save on taxes is health savings accounts. HSAs, maybe explain how those work, how much people can put into them, and why you would want to put money in that as a way to pay for health expenses. Uh, health savings accounts are a, a relatively new phenomenon, and they're confused a lot with flexible spending accounts, which have been around a lot longer. Um, historically speaking, a flexible spending account, whether it's for dependent care or whether it's for health care, is what's called a use it or lose it plan. So you, you decide how much you're going to put into the plan. If you don't use it at the end of the year, you lose the money. And so people were buying three pairs of glasses in December just to not lose the money, and it didn't make sense, and people hated the plan. HSAs are totally different. Number one, they're completely deductible in terms of the contributions that you make. Number two, they grow completely tax-deferred. And number three, they're not only not use it or lose it, but they allow you to invest the money. It doesn't have to sit in cash. So you can grow that money for two decades if you choose. And usually of IRA um, uh, distributions at 59 and a half, you can actually treat it like an IRA. So you can use it for your own retirement income or your own health care, uh, and you can use it much later. I tell folks, if you're in a high deductible health plan and you have access to an HSA, max the HSA, but don't spend it this year. Allow it to grow, invest it, invest it for the long term, because about half of the expenses, Jordan, that we have for health care in our lifetimes are in the last six months of our lives. Yeah. And if that's true, number one, we may want to use the money for long-term care insurance. Number two, we may just need it because we're seeing a lot more doctors when we're 87 than when we're 37. And what is the maximum people can put into an HSA per year? 
it depends on who is covered by the insurance policy, the underlying insurance policy. The limit for a family is $6,850 a year. There's an additional $1,000 catch-up if you're over age 55. So unlike the IRA and 401k catch-up at 50, the HSA catch-up is at age 55. So be careful of that. Uh, and the individual, if you don't insure your whole family, the individual limit is half of that. And then the final uh, tax-saving vehicle you talk about is whole life insurance. Now, people don't think of whole life as a, a tax-saving vehicle. How do you save money putting money, by buying premiums on a whole life insurance? It's funny. Whole life insurance is, uh, is uh, something that in the media people either love it or they hate it. Uh, and I would say, like anything else, it could be used well or it could be used I improperly. The thing I like about whole life insurance and the reason that I, I own a bunch personally is that money can grow in a tax-deferred way, and then it can be utilized in a tax-free way during your lifetime. And to me, whole life insurance used properly and funded properly, to me, it's like a Roth IRA with no contribution limit and with a death benefit. Now, there are pros and cons to it. Naturally, one of the cons is, unlike every other thing we've talked about, your contributions are not optional each year. You're contractually obligating yourself to make certain contributions in the form of premiums. So you don't want to do that because times are rosy and then in three years realize, oh boy, I can't fund this because that would be a disaster. But I, I like using it as part of the fixed income portion of a portfolio. I like seeing it as a, as a potential 4 or 5% return inside a, a wrapper where you're not paying any taxes. And if you've got a married couple and they own this, it's a perfect offset for the pay cut that happens when one of you is widowed and you lose a Social Security payment. So for example, let's say uh, a husband and wife each, each get uh, $2,500 a month in Social Security. It's 3,000, uh, I'm sorry, 30,000 a year each. When one of them is widowed, they're gonna take a $30,000 pay cut because one of those benefits, the smaller of the two goes away. If you can structure whole life insurance such that if the wife outlives the husband, the wife gets the death benefit from the husband's policy and starts using her own cash value in her own policy, you can keep their lifestyle the same as they had with Social Security, and they pay no income taxes on either the death benefit or the cash withdrawals. Now, there are lots of, there are lots of rules, and you've got to use them properly, and there are horror stories about uh, any insurance product used improperly. But done right and without overshooting the target, if they're fund to completion, well, these why, things are they're, they're cash cows. Why would you yeah. do whole life versus like index universal life? or variable life, which are both insurance, but they have more gain potential than 4 or 5%. They, they do have more gain potential, but they also have loss potential. And to me, I want the fixed income portion to be as secure as possible. So I like the fact that it's got built-in cash values, built-in contractual guarantees, things that the others don't have. And, and that's not to say that those other vehicles aren't fine for various things, but for a savings component, I like it to be a savings vehicle, and that means life rather than variable where you're investing. Very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Eric Bratman. He's a financial planner in uh, Maryland. Uh, he's got a book out called Retire Wealthy, and you can also check him out at his website, which is bratmanfinancial.com. We'll be back after this.
stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Eric Bratman. He is a financial planner in Maryland. He has a book out called Retire Wealthy. Uh, the tools you need to help build lasting wealth. And you can find out more about him at his website, BrotmanFinancial.com. Welcome back to the show, Eric. Thanks, Jordan. So we were talking about the ways to save on taxes. You actually have a free ebook. Tell people how they can get that. Yeah, um, we've got a dedicated website to an ebook that talks about the strategies we've been talking about today. Uh, and it's at lowtaxbook.com. If you go to that website, you will find a, a way to download this as a PDF, and it is it is a free resource. Uh, and hopefully you'll do that and, and read it and get all the ins and outs about what we spent 15 minutes on. Very good. Okay, now let's talk about millennials. We talked more about uh, pre-retirees and retirees so far, but people who are in their, say, 20s and 30s. So uh, are, are you finding that they're investing enough and doing the right things, or, or they need to be coaxed to, to get into the right habits? I think millennials are a generation on so many levels that are going to change the world. Uh, and I'm not a millennial, so that's not a self-serving thing. But um, they are they are making decisions that are foreign to the boomers and even the Xers at this point. I would say millennials understand that they are free agents. 
and more than any other generation, they're going to rely less on employers and less on the government and are going to be much more self-reliant. So I think a lot of them are already good savers and reasonably good investors. Um, the challenge millennials have is twofold. The one, a lot of them have enormous debt from school. Student loan debt is a serious issue. Uh, and number two, they change jobs so frequently that they don't vest in benefits and they leave money on the table every time they make a career shift. And that can be an expensive decision over time. So let's take the student debt first. So say somebody comes out of college with whatever, 100, 150,000 in student loan debt. I mean, it's, it happens all the time. Do you tell them to put their resources towards paying that down first or do the retirement savings? How do they prioritize where to put any excess money they've got? I, I think in every case, if they're eligible for a retirement plan at work that has a matching contribution, it makes sense to at least fund to that level. So if, if a company's going to match the first 4% or 5% of what you make, at least do that because that's an immediate 100% tax-deferred uh, return, right? So do that. After that, I think it's all about debt reduction. Um, unless you're getting some significant benefit to do other things like a match on a 401k, I think debt reduction has to come first. If you can consolidate the debts, it makes sense. You certainly want to pay the highest rate debt down first uh, in almost every case. And, you know, the student loans of $150,000, heck, we've seen them as high as half a million between, you know, a married couple with undergrad and grad. Um, that's like having a, a mortgage with no house for the, for the rest of their adult lives. So anytime you can get rid of the student debt first, I think you're better off. What do you think about refinancing student loan debt to a lower rate? If you can do it, it's worth doing. Um, most of the time, the costs are nominal. Um, and if you can get a lower rate and even potentially an extended term so that it creates less, uh, less burden on your cash flow, I think that's a very good thing. Um, I, I don't like to see folks uh, consolidate just for the sake of doing it, for convenience necessarily, but if you can lower your interest rate, lower the cost to carry the note, um, uh, then it's worth doing. Now, also you say millennials should be saving for a down payment on a house. I mean, typically banks want 20% or so, and with the price of houses today, that's a good piece of change. So how can they be paying down their debt, maxing out their 401k, and putting money aside for a down payment? Well, they, functionally, in most cases, they can't. So the reality is if you're, if you're funding something in your 401k and you're paying down the debt, you're going to have little or no bandwidth left to save for a home, which is why so many don't buy homes right away. You also, because of the mobility of the generation and the fact that you could be working in San Antonio today and San Jose tomorrow, it doesn't make sense necessarily to buy a house and, and put roots down until you're really ready to do that. So I think generation gets it. Um, I would say that the best way to fund a, a, a home, if you are ready to put roots down, is to consider roommates. Because so many millennials are renters. If you're in a position where you can buy a home yourself and you can rent a room or two rooms to friends or colleagues, it will allow you to offset the carry cost of that home. Um, I've seen uh, situations where the down payment is significantly less than 20%. It can be as little as 3% for first-time home buyers. Um, and that doesn't mean you want to necessarily get yourself in debt trouble, but it does mean you can get in the door. And if you have some help paying that mortgage by virtue of having one or more tenants in your home, that's not a bad thing for young people. And then you also say to have a consolidated plan. A lot of millennials use robo-advisors uh, as opposed to a human uh, advisor. Do, do, when does it make sense to do a human versus a robo-advisor? I think as soon as your life is complicated enough that you want to talk about qualitative variables, it makes sense to have a human being. 
someone who can empathize and understand some of the things you're going through. Um, robos are great for designing a portfolio. They're fine for figuring out algorithms and what you ought to be putting in your, your 401k, and they can do time value and money equations and, and those types of things. But in terms of, should I buy or lease my car, or do you think I ought to take on roommates, or which job is going to be better for me, this one here in, in Texas or this one here in Nevada? I, I think it does make sense to have some advice from someone who's more of a concierge, who gets to know you, who is uh, either fee-for-service or, or, or flat-service type of situation. And uh, by doing that, y you get a sounding board to help you with the big decisions because most of them are irrevocable. We make a lot of big decisions, and most of them you don't get redos. A lot of millennials put their money into index funds. Where do you stand on the passive income or passive uh, activity versus actively managed funds debate? I tend to prefer, particularly on the equity side, I tend to prefer passive. Uh, I think costs matter. I, I think it makes sense in certain asset classes to consider uh, some active management, but for the most part, I'd rather be inexpensive. I'd rather own the entire market. Um, now, all index funds are not created equally. So I like passive, but I don't necessarily like something tied to an index. And the reason for that is if you own an S&P 500 index fund and you know that a stock is leaving, for example, they're leaving the S&P, they're being thrown out of the S&P uh, and being replaced by another company. What happens is that news causes buying and selling in the open market and index funds are going to invariably have huge positions that takes them a long time to get into and out of. So you're not going to get good execution. And essentially, that means while your expense ratio is low, and while the fund is cheap, you're not getting necessarily the best price to buy something or the best price to sell something, and you have no, absolutely no control over what you buy or sell or when. So passive management to me makes sense. It's inexpensive. It's tax efficient. But I don't necessarily want to own all 500 stocks in the S&P index fund. I might want to hold a passive fund that holds 300 or 350 of those stocks and allows them to be and buys and holds for the most part, uh, as opposed to having something with a mandated purchase or sale. And these would be exchange-traded funds or mutual funds, or what would be your way of doing passive investing? Um, it could be either one. I, I like exchange-traded funds uh, most of the time because I don't always love waiting till till the close of the market to determine the net asset value of a purchase or sale. Um, however, um, in certain cases, if you're adding to a fund, you're adding to a um, uh, your account on a monthly basis, for example, if you're buying exchange-traded funds every month, you're going to have some form of ticket charge most places. Whether it's a whether it's a, a robo advisor or a human advisor, you're going to have some expenses to do that. Whereas in a mutual fund, a lot of times there's no cost to execute a trade if it's routine and automatic. So all things being equal, the expense ratios are similar. Sometimes it's actually better to use a mutual fund if you're dollar cost averaging every month or every paycheck. So we just talked about millennials. Let's go a little bit younger. Uh, so some advice for people just recently graduating uh, from college. Um, what is some ad advice in today's job market to find a good first, first full-time job? Well, in terms of choosing a job, I think the first thing that young people have to understand is, number one, it's not necessarily the only job they'll ever have. Um, and so they're building a vitae and a resume and some credentialing. But number two, they have to look at more than just the base salary. I think a mistake a lot of young people make is they see what the salary is and they compare based on just that fact. 
Um, the fact is, whether a company is contributing toward your health insurance or toward your uh, a match on your retirement plan, or they're making an HSA available, or they're offering other types of benefits or perks or flexibility, I think there's much more to it than just the base salary. So the first thing is compare all of the factors before accepting a job. The factors that are qualitative in terms of what is the job, where would you be living, and are you going to enjoy it, but also the quantitative factors about how am I going to pay the bills on this? Is there enough salary, but are there also some benefits that are meaningful that will save money? Do you find a lot of people get out of school and are not really focused on what kind of job they want or what they want to do and they have a hard time getting started? You know, I, I think 10 or 20 years ago, the answer was yes. And I think today, a lot of these young people are laser focused on what they want to do and how they want to do it. And one of the things that not only current grads, but even some of the younger millennials have discovered is, is a term that I didn't know until I, until I got to know a whole lot more folks from the generation, and that's the side hustle. And this whole idea that you have a job, but you also have something else that you do for, for income. Um, it's kind of an interesting, an interesting um, paradigm because it allows you to have fallback if you lose a job or if you're transitioning, and it also allows you to have some control over your schedule and over your income where you can't if you simply punch a clock. I, I think the young people today are really, really focused on what they want to do and how they're, how they're going to get there, and what they really need more than anything is a mentor or a coach or an advisor or somebody to help them along the way. Not to hand them things, but to, 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 to talk them through. Yeah. Uh, and you also say uh, that people should be careful in uh, getting a place to live that they can afford. So should you get your job first, see what your salary is going to be, and then find a place to live so you don't spend too much on housing? Ideally, yeah. And if you're in a position where, where you have uh, family members, whether it's your parents or someone else, who are willing to let you spend three to six months after school there. I, I don't think it's a stigma. I, I think it's smart. If you, if you don't know where your job's going to be, don't sign a lease for a year and then wind stuck. Give yourself the flexibility to find the job, know what your income's going to be, determine your roommate situation, and then find a place you want to live. And then you also say people should create a budget. A lot of young people have never done that before. How do you recommend that they, they do that? Budgets are tough. It's almost a dirty word because nobody in the, in, no families really stick to a budget. It doesn't matter what you set up. Budgets are blown all the time. What I would say for young people, though, is they have to have a sense of what's coming in the door after income taxes are withheld and after benefits are paid and, and how that's going to impact their ability to, to live and to eat and to drive and to do the things that they want to do. So it's, it's real important, at least, at least on the back of an envelope to have some form of a, of a budget that says, okay, this is what I can afford to spend money on. To me, it doesn't matter what they're choosing to do or how they're choosing to spend as long as they know what they have to spend. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Eric Brotman. He is a certified financial planner, author of a book called Retire Wealthy, and you can find out more about him at his website, brotmanfinancial.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Looking for an investment option? Consider Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. Secured Real Estate Income Strategies is a real estate-backed option offering investments with a monthly income objective. The goal of the strategy is to lend money to real estate developers. 
SREIS offers an 8% preferred return per annum, plus a share in any profits. While there is risk, including loss of capital, and you should carefully read the offering circular for full details, Secured Real Estate Income Strategies screens each real estate loan carefully. Call 888-444-2102 or visit securedrealestatefunds.com to learn more. 888-444-2102. Jordan Goodman is an advisor to and part owner in Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. This does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Securities offered through North Capital Private Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Eric Brotman. He's a financial planner in Maryland. Uh, his firm is called Brotman Financial. He has a book out called Retire Wealthy, and you can find out more at BrotmanFinancial.com. Welcome back to the show, Eric. Thanks, Jordan. So let's talk about debt a little bit. Uh, the average person has about 16000 in credit card debt, which is going up quite a bit. Uh, what are some things that people can do to get control if they have that much, much uh, credit card debt? Well, you know, the first thing first thing we advise folks with credit card debt is not to get into it in the first place because it's like digging a hole. Once you're in the hole, it's much harder to get out. Um, what I would say is that there are um, there are some situations where folks need a credit counseling service or they need to consider bankruptcies or they need to consider things that are really, really a triage. But in most cases, that's not necessary. In most cases, what you really need to do is order your debts, figure out how the high interest debts can be paid first. Um, and you can use commercial software to do this. It's not difficult or expensive to figure out, but the hard part is the discipline, the discipline to have it, the discipline to, to print out essentially payment coupons and say, I'm gonna get out of debt and it's gonna take me 36 months, but by gosh, I'm gonna get there. Uh, and then not to allow it to, to continue and not to spend to, to, to perpetuate it. So you think people are getting into debt for the wrong reasons, they're just doing spending they really can't afford, or are they doing it for medical emergencies or something that's kind of has to be done? Well, sometimes it's medical, and sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's an emergency or an accident or something, but a lot of times it's behavioral. 
Um, and and the idea of immediate gratification and uh, and and buy now pay later is so ingrained in us, particularly as Americans. I mean that that is part of the. Uh, it used to be the layaway plan, and now it's the 24 months, same as cash, and so forth and so on. So uh, I I think folks have a tendency to get in trouble because they realize, oh, that that payment's not a big deal by itself, but they may have six of them. And that's when you start borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, and that's not a good thing to do. So I, I think most of it's behavioral. There are definitely examples where uh, medical emergencies or other things, family emergencies, will create that. But I, I tend to think most of it's behavioral. So how do you consolidate or refinance debt to get interest rates down, particularly on credit cards? I think it depends first what your other resources are. If you have other resources, a la you have some equity in your home or you have some form of investment account that's not an IRA, there are certainly ways that you can leverage those with either a home equity line of credit or a, a securities-backed line of credit or something that allows you to get a lower rate and a more predictable payment. Now, it used to be that home equity lines were had some tax advantages to them. They don't anymore as of this new tax bill, um, although there's some exceptions to that if you use them for home improvements. But for debt consolidation, it's not a, it's not a panacea in any way. However, if you can get something at prime instead of, a, you know, so call it four and a half or five or six percent over the next five years instead of what could be 12, 13, 15, 18 percent, it makes a huge difference right away. So if you have access to those types of assets, find them. If you don't have access to them and you're able to, to do what's called terming a loan, we're, we're doing a personal loan that, that gives you a fixed payment for X number of months with your bank. Sometimes that's a good idea. It'll be a higher rate than your lines of credit, but lower than your credit card. So you might be able to get a, a note for three years or five years at eight or nine percent, which again, isn't great, but it's better than Visa or MasterCard in most cases. Um, and then if you truly have no credit worthiness and, and no ability to do that, the next thing is you're going to get bombarded with credit card offers because if credit card companies know that you're the kind of person who spends a lot of money on credit card interest, believe it or not, you're their target. So you're going to get them all. If you have the ability to move money to, to a card with, with no interest for a period of time or low interest for an extended period of time, that can be helpful, although it's really a Band-Aid, not a tourniquet. Um, and I would say you have to read the fine print. Some of those deals look great until you realize you're paying a 5% fee to do them. Indeed, yeah. Now, you say there's a difference between good debt and bad debt. What would be considered good debt and what would be considered bad debt? Good debt is leverage. Good debt is, is any time you're making a purchase where you can lever up your purchase, like a home or a business, um, or even in some cases, education, if you're, if you're going to law school and you're predictably going to double your income in three years, that's, that's an investment. That is not necessarily bad debt. There is no such thing as good consumer debt, whether it's a car note, whether it's a, whether it's a department store, whether it's a visa. Um, it, it, consumer debt is never a good thing. But anything that's either appreciating in value like a home or a business or that, is, um, or that is going to create additional wherewithal for you down the road is truly an investment, and therefore I consider that leverage, not debt. Just another topic you talk about in your book is long-term care insurance. When does that make sense to get long-term care insurance, and is it too expensive for people today to, to buy? Long-term care is something we normally start talking with folks uh, about in their early to mid-50s. And in most cases, it is extremely expensive, but a whole lot less expensive than if one or both of spouses get sick. 
So it's really a it's really a conversation that comes down to resources and priorities. Um, and sometimes family history too. I mean, if you if you've got a history of cognitive impairment in your family, predictably you're somebody who ought to get long-term care while you can, because those are the folks who wind up with five and six and eight and ten ten-year claims as opposed to hospice care for three months. Um, I would say that long-term care is um, it's a changing uh, landscape. It is worth exploring. It is not a panacea. There are lots of ways to do it, but some of it is standalone. Like, a, like car insurance, where if you don't have an accident, you don't claim anything. Well, that's inexpensive, but there's no benefits unless you have a claim. Some of them are tied to a, a form of annuity or insurance product. Uh, some of them have premiums that can't change, but many of them have premiums that do change over time. So it's real important to work with someone who not only knows elder care and long-term care, uh, but also who knows your finances well enough to know whether this is worth doing or not, because it is expensive. And it's gone up a lot lately because people are using it more and, and living longer and having a lot of claims on that. So let's just kind of take an overall view. So what difference will it make in people's lives if they follow the advice you've given during this hour compared to what they're, they may be doing before they'd come and see you? Well, first thing first, if you can avoid bad debt and you can um, pay less taxes and you can um, balance your portfolio in some way, then you're already ahead of the game. Um, and so folks who come see us, for the most part, it's really about the strategy. It's really about um, taking a holistic approach and looking at it from 50,000 feet. Um, and so the first process, the first step in any process for financial planning is what I'd refer to as taking inventory. It's figuring out where you are. It's taking all of those drawers in your desk at home and dumping them on a desk and saying, all right, this is where I have this insurance or these benefits or this account or that account. And just see where we are because you can't, you can't build a path to where you want to be until you really have a good sense of where you are and you're honest with yourself about it. So you feel that that's something that's hard for people to do on their own. They need like an accountability partner like you to actually make it happen. Is that what you're saying? In most cases, yes. I mean, some of us, some of us can go to the gym uh, and get in terrific shape and other people need trainers. And that's not to say one is right and one is wrong. But I will tell you, Jordan, in my case, if I don't have somebody saying drop and give me 20, I'm not doing them. So uh, some of it is just a personality thing. I do think accountability is important. I do think having some expertise is important. And I absolutely think looking at everything in, um, not looking at each piece in a vacuum, but looking at it holistically is incredibly important and very valuable. Because people often complain about the annual fees they're paying or commissions, whatever it may be. You're saying in the long run, those are relatively small compared to the benefit they're going to get. Not necessarily small, but worth it. So in other words, you have to look and understand what paying. It absolutely isn't always transparent, and it's real important to ask those questions of any advisor you use. It's never free. But a lot of times what we find is that we're able to create value or find uh, savings or, more importantly, help with behavior when things go wrong and keep people from making a devastating mistake in a situation like October, November 08. And, you know, a lot of times we're worth our weight in platinum at the very moment where there's a, a turbulent sea, not while everything is smooth sailing. Indeed. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Eric Brotman. He's a financial planner in Maryland. Uh, his firm is called Brotman Financial Group. He's got a book out called Retire Wealthy, and you can find out more at BrotmanFinancial.com. Thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, Eric. Jordan, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now.
Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.